This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Amanda Machaga driving the show with One Lenzinzi, Wissani Matebula and Neto Chemani. Top stories on Africa Digest. South Sudan angered by a report blaming the government for killing off more than 60 people in the oil-producing region of Unity. The 13th Congress of South African Trade Union National Congress ends in Johannesburg. In economics, the European Commission warns Facebook that it will face sanctions if it does not bring its consumer protection within EU standards by the end of the year. And in sport, the Labour Cup teams assembled in Chicago as some of the best tennis players combine as teammates for the three-day tournament. But first, here's O'Neill with the news. Thank you, Amanda. The United Nations Joint Office for Human Rights is calling on the Democratic Republic of Congo's government and opposition to refrain from violence as the country prepares for elections set for December 23. In total, 21 candidates, including the ruling coalitions Ramazani Shedri and both Felix Chisekedi and Vital Kamere from the opposition, have to compete in order to replace the outgoing President Joseph Kabila, the office director in the DRC's Abdul Aziz Toye. The human rights situation is still worrisome. The number is uh, on the rise, which is uh, quite worrisome. If we have an increase in the number of human rights violations, the situation is quite complicated uh, and, and decisive action must be taken to definitely uh, prevent human rights violations by the state agent. When I said state agent, I mean FRDC, PNC, INR agent, and also sometimes administrative authorities or local administrative authorities at the provincial level. The government of Lesotho is demanding a retraction of statements made by Amnesty International and the Commonwealth Judges Association that condemned the suspension of the country's Chief Justice in Tumeng Majara. The two organizations said the suspension violated the rule of law and undermined the independence of judiciary. But Lesotho says the process followed but was constitutional and that the statement was misleading. As Lesotho continues to battle finding stability through constitutional, security and judicial reforms, the suspension of the Chief Justice has brought the blurring of lines in the powers of the Prime Minister, the King and the Judicial Service Commission to the fore. The Chief Justice was suspended by the King following the binding advice of the Prime Minister and even if the King hadn't taken the advice, the Prime Minister has the power to proceed and that action is considered to be the action of the King. Meanwhile, the voice of the Judicial Service Commission Commission responsible for appointment and discipline in the judiciary has not been heard on the matter. But the government is adamant the suspension is above board and the condemning statements are mischievous and wants unconditional retraction. South Africa's former president, Khalima Motlante, has assured Zimbabweans that the Commission of Inquiry into Zimbabwe's post-election violence that took place on August 1st will come up with a credible report after the hearing. 
Mutlante, who is leading the commission, said this after seven members of the commission took their oath before Zimbabwean President Emerson Nangagwa. Mutlante and former Commonwealth Chief Emeka Anyaoku are part of a high-level panel that Nangagwa has appointed to investigate post-election violence in Zimbabwe. Muslim and Christian clerics and leaders of all major denominations in Cameroon have jointly accused Cameroonians in a diaspora for funding the crisis that has rocked the English-speaking regions of the central state for two years. The clerics are asking both the military and armed groups to stop, to drop their guns rather, and stop the killings, looting and burning of property. But the government says only the armed separatists should drop their guns. Mwake Kinzeka has more. The declaration by the Episcopal Conference of Cameroon's Catholic Bishops, the Council of Protestant Churches Sepka, and the Islamic Superior Council of Cameroon, which bring together all mosques and churches except Pentecostal denominations, calls on all political parties and the civil society to center their activities on bringing peace in the troubled regions. They also call on both the armed separatists and the military to drop their guns and stop the indiscriminate killings, kidnappings, looting and burning of public property and allow children to go to school. And lastly, Liberian President George Weir has signed a long-sought land reform law that gives local communities greater rights over customary land and lets foreigners and charities own property. First drafted in 2014, the Land Rights Act has been criticized by some who say it weakens the rights of Liberians who live in rural areas, notably women. Local communities can now claim ownership of customary land based on oral testimonies of community members, maps, signed agreements between neighboring communities and other documents. A nationwide survey is to be carried out within two years to confirm which are customary lands and which are privately held. Channel African News, I'm Onilin Sinzi. This is Africa Digest. Thank you, Anele. It's 17.06 Central African time. You're listening to Africa Digest. The authorities in South Sudan have been angered by Amnesty International report that they are responsible for the killing of more than 60 people in the oil-producing region of Unity, north of the capital, Juba. The authorities also denied that their troops raped women and girls and looted property of residents of the region. James Shimanyula reports. As the people of South Sudan eagerly wait for the implementation of a new peace agreement to pave the way for the formation of a government of national unity, the London-based human rights organization Amnesty International has decried what it calls staggering brutality unleashed on residents of the oil-rich region of unity north of the capital Yuba. In a report, Amnesty International says, a military offensive aimed at flushing out rebels from areas they control in unity state led to the killing of more than 60 people and maiming of hundreds of others. Amnesty International has documented cases of dozens of civilian women and men describing how the military offensive was characterized by brutality with civilians deliberately shot dead, burnt alive, 
hanged from trees run over with the military vehicles in areas controlled by rebels. According to Amnesty International, survivors of the brutality testified that the government soldiers abducted many civilians, mainly women and girls, and held them for seven weeks. They were then subjected to systematic sexual abuses, and even one woman testified that she was gang raped. Amnesty International's report on atrocities committed by soldiers in South Sudan has angered the authorities there. This is how Information Minister Michael McQuay described Amnesty International's report on atrocities committed in Unity Region. These are people who are living on the blood of the people of South Sudan. These are people who keep on sending side reports so that the international community is made to believe that South Sudan is not at peace. Where do they get these reports? Because whatever violation which is done is sent to the JMCC. The JMCC goes there to verify, not individuals who sit in the hotels and write fake reports. South Sudan Information Minister Michael McQuay blames Amnesty International for not submitting its report directly to the government but supplying it to the social media. What they do is that prepare the report, they send them, and then the reports come back to us through the social media. These are not reports, these are fake reports, because if you are writing a general report, you are supposed to copy the person against whom you are writing. But this has not been happening. So we don't need to investigate. That was South Sudan Information Minister Michael McQuay, also angered by Amnesty International report, is President Salva Kiir's spokesman, Wekateng Wek, who says allegations made by the International Human Rights Organization have been made before. All the allegations were not new because they have been uh, said before. Each time the government of South Sudan gets closer to returning the country to normalcy, it is not peculiar to South Sudan. Whenever such a statement is released, it is always detrimental to the implementation of peace agreement because it obstructs the peace implementers to get to defensive instead of continue to implement. So if Amnesty International is part of the international community that would want to see South Sudan returning to normalcy, they must be careful on what to talk about. That was Wek Ateng Wek, official spokesman for South Sudan President Salva Kiir. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. British companies participating in this year's aerospace and defense exhibition currently underway in Pretoria, South Africa, say the event provides an opportunity for them to create long-term innovative industrial partnerships with South Africa. The exhibition, which is staged every two years, attracts exhibitors in defense technology and innovation from across the world and showcases the capabilities of armed forces. The theme for this year's exhibition is Unlocking Africa's Aerospace and Defense Potential. The UK team is led by Nigel Maddox, Senior Military Advisor in the Department of International Trades, Defence and Security. Maddox says South Africa is an important partner for the UK and the companies exhibiting at the event continue to deepen and strengthen the two countries' defence relationships.
We're looking to build very much on our Prime Minister's very successful visit and to promote trade between our two countries. Collaboration, partnership and the transfer of technical information between companies is very much at the forefront of our mission here. We see very much that there is a lot of synergy between our defence and security uh, companies here in South Africa and in the United Kingdom. So we are very much looking forward to some joint ventures with companies that are here and a two-way street. This is very much a two-way street to the benefit of South Africa and for the benefit of the United Kingdom. There is a wide range of innovative uh, defense and security capabilities that are on uh, display. Talk to us about uh, some of uh, the uh, innovations that uh, the UK companies will be exhibiting at the event. Well, very much actually, again, building on the discussions between our two heads of government, cyber security is very much at the center of a dialogue between our two countries. It's a threat that just not doesn't um, uh, involve actually UK and South Africa. It's one that globally we face. And we would like very much to work with our friends here in South Africa actually for a successful conclusion. You have some very good ideas on cyber. And I know you have some companies like Danelle that are actually looking very seriously at how they're going to approach that cyber security. In the UK, we have companies like Fujitsu and Kinetic who are already well established in the cyber field. Also, with niche capability we have here, we have representatives from Babcock who actually maintain and support our Royal Navy in the UK and are looking for a partnership in South Africa. Uh, Kemmering, Kinetic and other companies are all here very willing to work with South African companies. There are also different African countries that are exhibiting at this event. What kind of partnerships would you like to create between yourself and other African countries apart from South Africa? Well, I, I think we look to South Africa as our main partner here and I think we are going to focus more and more on our research research requirements between our two countries and I hope that that joint research will endeavor in some technology that we can both export globally. We would probably look to South Africa to lead in Africa with UK support and there might be other areas globally where we would actually go and lead and South Africa would be in support for us. But this really builds on a long-term relationship that we have had with South Africa and the United Kingdom. So we're looking to the future and there are lots of areas of mutual capability that we could benefit from. That's Nigel Maddox, Senior Military Advisor in the Department of International Trade, Defence and Security Organization in the United Kingdom, talking to Kumbero Munzarele. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people, and we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Hashtag Mama Sisulu Centenary. Channel Africa, leading the Women's Month conversations. This is Africa Digest.
1715 Central African Time, you're listening to Africa Digest. This is a Channel Africa where we're bringing you news from an African perspective. The United Nations is in final preparation for the annual high-level segment of the General Assembly that will see the world's political elite descend on the city that never sleeps. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa will depart at the weekend to lead a powerful delegation of cabinet ministers as the country basks in the spotlight that comes with the day-long Nelson Mandela Peace Summit next Monday, in which over 140 delegations have requested to speak. The general debate begins on Tuesday with royalty, presidents and prime ministers all expected under one roof. Showing Price Peace reports from New York. Diplomats quietly telling us that this is South Africa's General Assembly. The unveiling of a Mandela statue as a gift to the UN will serve as a precursor to the adoption of a political declaration in the former president's name, setting the stage for a week where the recently elected member of next year's Security Council will be in high demand. Listen to Ambassador Jerry Machila. The next week is action-packed. The whole world, 103 nations are joining us on Be the Legacy. So the UN system have embraced this be the legacy. So the president is arriving over the weekend, the minister tonight, and other delegations. So to pursue this be the legacy, the UN has agreed that we will have a special day, 24th of September, dedicated to Nelson Mandela's values, positions around the peace summit. And then, We have another leg around the business because the president wants to mobilize resources for investment. So we have a whole day for activities. The general debate starts on September 25th with United States President Donald Trump among the first to speak. While side events include a focus on eradicating tuberculosis, controlling non-communicable diseases, non-proliferation and financing for the 2030 agenda. Secretary General... Antonio Guterres. At a time of fragmentation and polarization, the worlds need this assembly to show the value of international cooperation. The Secretariat and I are committed to supporting you and strengthening the ways in which we work together. And Madam President, I wish you and all Member States every success as we strive to achieve our shared goals. The 73rd session of the Assembly, which officially opened on Tuesday, sees a woman lead the body for the first time in 12 years, and only the fourth time in history. Her name is Maria Fernanda Espinosa Garces from Ecuador. I am proud and happy to become the first woman in Latin America and the Caribbean to preside over the General Assembly. In my work here, we intend to strengthen multilateralism. The only, I would say, way to solve the global problems is through a collective, cooperative approach. That's what we need. Security is at a premium for this event, with UN, local, state and federal law enforcement officials tasked with keeping the VIPs and their battalions of aid safe as the Secretary-General spokesperson Stefan Dujeric explains. Right now, in advance of the plenary session, we have confirmations that 88 heads of states, 45 heads of government are to attend the session, which is up from 77 heads of state and 37 heads of government last year. 
Regarding other events, as of today, the Department for General Assembly and Conference Management has received 342 requests for meetings during the high-level week. Compared for the same time last year, it received 343. And as of today, our colleagues have received a total of 741 requests for bilateral meetings amongst member states, and this number will increase uh, during next week. One of the most important stakeholders in the success of this annual event are the people who will be housed in a massive tent on the north lawn of the UN precinct, the media. Up to 3,000 print, radio, TV, online, state, public and private media houses from around the world. Many who will likely view sleep as a luxury rather than a prerequisite in the days ahead. I'm Sherman Bryce-Pease in New York. The Congress of South African Trade Union, COSATU's 13th National Congress, has ended in Midrand, north of Johannesburg. The four-day Congress ended with the leadership being officially elected. For the first time in history, a woman will lead the Trade Federation. Singi Swalosi, the former Deputy President, is now the Federation's first female President. Earlier this week, Losi and six other top officials were nominated unopposed to be COSATU's new office bearers. Deliberations on the economy, the National Health Insurance, and the land issue where among uh, other issues are being discussed at the Congress. To talk to us more on this, we are joined on the line by COSATU spokesperson Sizwe Pamla. Good afternoon and thank you for joining us. Uh, now, Mr. Pamla, would you say the Congress was a success? It definitely was a success. We are very happy uh, with the way the uh, Congress went. I mean, if you look at uh, the deliberations, we were able to dispense with the issue of leadership very early on. The the fact that we were able to agree on who should take the organization going forward and the the smooth transition for us, uh, that is very important because we needed to engage on issues that are socioeconomic in nature, that uh, organizational and good uh, politics. So if you look at uh, our focus area in terms of rebuilding and uh, uh, some of our affiliates and uh, talking to the issue of recruitment, uh, developing a service and retention strategy in terms of membership, talking about developing a legal strategy that is going to help us to really wage uh, the workers talking uh, using the courts of law. We were very comfortable with the amount of time we were able to spend on those issues, including uh, issues uh, like uh, talking about the fourth industrial revolution, developing strategies that will help us to be able to not be left behind, to cope and adapt as when automation uh, and mechanization are taking place. Now, are you planning to revisit your balance of power within the alliance? No, definitely. Uh, the alliance, the Congress was very clear that the alliance cannot continue to function the way it has been doing. The Congress uh, reminded all of us that we are not in alliance for sentimental reasons. We are in alliance because uh, we expect the alliance to look after our own goals and aspirations as workers. And uh, the process of reconfiguration, we have agreed that we are going to give this process a chance, uh, meaning that we are going to see whether, uh, especially the African American Congress, is serious about uh, configuration. And uh, as we go to the 
uh, central committee that will take this into real time to assess the work that we would have done. That is one of the issues. We will look at that time and see whether are we making any progress. And at the same time, we have made it very clear that we expect the South African Communist Party to start taking seriously the issue of contesting uh, power. Uh, because as we go forward, we, 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 we want to build the ANC dependence of the DAO, but since we are not married to the ANC, we have to keep our options open. So we are very clear that the Allies will not continue to participate, especially when it comes to policy formulation and policy implementation. Still on the issue of, of balance, with the new leadership in place, would you say that balancing politics with the needs of workers will be looked into? No, that, that is always an issue. For us, we, 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 we always discuss this issue, and we did discuss it time around, because our own understanding has always been that everything is political. Uh, the decisions that get taken are political in nature. Uh, in fact, we, we were doing a reflection in the year 2020, and we realized that when the country was in, in a crisis, we saw many political uh, formations, including civil society, working together, but they were almost helpless in a sense. But they were marching together. And it took an insider organization like Osad to not just uh, push back against uh, the then president, but to campaign uh, for a, a deputy president who has been isolated at the time. And if it wasn't for the fact that we were insiders in the alliance and we were able to actively participate, President Jacob Zuma would still be in control today because uh, his election would have won. So that was a reminder to us to say being outside of uh, political processes can render the organization frustrated and helpless. But we were able to influence uh, the Nazi conference inside. And that is one of those things that we appreciate about really participating because we were able to stop the roads, especially the roads that was hitting up our own pockets as well as Africans. You have called on breakaway unions that formed SAF to, to return. Why is this? Look, um, a couple of years down the line, we have to do an honest infrastructure and assessment. Uh, what we, we, we have managed to do over the last three years uh, is that we have worked very well with the NATO as federations. But uh, the the, 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 the events of 2012-2013, when some of the unions left the federation, including the ones that left in 2015, we, we felt that it has weakened uh, the, the federation to some extent uh, in, in some areas. For an example, if you look at the, the, the plight of farm workers, currently COFAT doesn't have a, 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 a union that organizes the farm sector because FAO left uh, to join SAFT. And we, we should look at the plight of the farm workers. We, 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 we find it difficult to really, at a federation level, to be able to help those workers without an affiliate in the farm set. And we think that also the, the, the contestation that we have seen amongst unions has actually weakened them to a certain extent. It's the employers we have benefited. So this division, as we reflect now, we do feel that. They have emboldened employers. If you look at the number of transplants in my sector, number of transplants in many sectors of the economy, we feel that what we do not need is the proliferation of unions, but what we need is bigger unions that can exert their power and be able to work 
Mr. Pamela, thank you so much for your time, sir. That is Sizwe Pamela, spokesperson at the Congress of South African Trade Unions. South Africa has just under 10, de- 10 World Heritage Sites, among them the Fred Ford Dome in the Free State and the Ukatlamba Drakensberg Park in KwaZulu-Natal Province. The World Heritage Site list is a composition of monuments from around the world which have been deemed sacred and placed under the protection of World Organization UNESCO. Channel Africa's Humuzo Mopulane reflects on the country's rich heritage. South Africa has been famously referred to as the Rainbow Nation because it is made up of many diverse cultures and religions. With 11 official languages and 8 other recognized languages, the rich culture of each of these groups brings its own vibrancy to the diversity. Among some of its tribes are the Zulus, Tosas, Ndebele, Tsonga, Tswana and Venda. There are also Indians, Chinese and Cape Malay culture in the country. South Africa's natural heritage is just as rich. Nine of the country's sites are listed in the UNESCO World Heritage Sites Compilation List. Ismangaliso, formerly known as Greater St. Lucia Wet Park Lands in the KwaZulu-Natal province, has a rich biodiversity and boasts more species than the Kruger National Park. This, including the country's largest concentration of animals and over 500 bird species. Robben Island in the Western Cape is a world-renowned location of political prison where struggle icon Nelson Mandela and many other freedom fighters spent years incarcerated. The popular tourist destination was declared a World Heritage Site in 1999. The Mapungube cultural landscape in the Limpopo province is located on the northern border of South Africa adjoining Zimbabwe and Botswana. Although it was discovered back in 1932, the Iron Age site was kept a secret from the public until only after democracy because it contained strong evidence of a highly advanced indigenous society existing centuries before European colonialism spreading across Africa and that ran contrary to the racist ideology of apartheid. These are just some of the World Heritage Sites in the country which continue to be some of the best tourist destinations. This 24th of September, South Africa will be celebrating Heritage Day, an opportunity for citizens to celebrate their cultural diversity, beliefs and traditions. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Komoto Mupulani in Johannesburg. Time now for our news headlines with Onil Nsinzi.
The United Nations Joint Office for Human Rights calls on the Democratic Republic of Congo's government and opposition to refrain from violence as the country prepares for elections set for December. South Sudan has defended with anger a report made by Amnesty International that they are responsible for the killing of more than 60 people in the north of the capital, Juba. And Liberian President George Weah signs a long-sought land reform law that gives local communities greater rights over customary land. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelin Zinzi. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. 1731 Central African Time. This is Africa Digest. Fewer people fell ill and died from tuberculosis last year, but countries are still not doing enough to end TB by 2030. This is a warning from the World Health Organization. In its global TB report released this week, the UN Global Health Body documented sluggish progress on the lung disease, indicating that countries will not be able to meet their targets in the end TB strategy at this slow pace. The report was released just a week before heads of state convene in New York at the UN's first ever summit on tuberculosis, the UN high-level meeting on TB. To discuss the contents of the report, we are joined on the line by Dr. Justine Fega, a DRTB doctor in the International Medical Humanitarian Agency, MSF Skylicha Project, whose aim is to develop and implement treatment regimens for MDRTB and innovative models of care for patients living with HIV and TB. Good evening and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Now, in a nutshell, what are the key findings of this global TB report and did they come as a surprise? Well, I think you summed up one of the main ones in in your introduction there, which I thought was absolutely beautiful, was that TB continues to be a challenge globally. It's still the number one infectious killer. There are 1.3 million deaths from TB last year. And if we consider people who are living with HIV who died, the total was 1.7 in a single year, 2017. And in addition to that, 10 million people developed TB disease last year alone. So that's the first one. The second one is that although the disease burden is decreasing globally, it is very slow. And that goes the same for mortality and TB incidence. The third thing is that there are huge gaps in testing so finding patients, finding people who are living with TB and actually linking them to treatments. So we have these huge numbers, but not everyone is accessing care. And finally, the funding for prevention, diagnosis and treatment is $3.5 billion short. And there are still drastic gaps in the funding for research and development into TB. So those are the main trends coming out of the WHO reports. And what is this picture looking like uh, for South Africa? Is it just as shocking? So it is, it is shocking. We are still um, facing TB as the number one killer in our country, regardless of infectious or not, not infectious. And we're having quite poor outcomes, especially in drug-resistant TB. So that's your MDR or your XDR. But we are listed as one of the countries who have made, as quoted in the, the report, impressive reductions in TB incidents. So we are getting there. My one concern, however, is 
the TB treatment coverage is uh, reported as 68%, which although it's not maybe to some shocking, I'm, I'm quite concerned about the range where some areas are sitting at 51% and others at 96%, which brings into question whether we're having fair distribution and access to health services, which I'm sure we all agree is not happening. Having touched on that, how encouraging has the response, if at all, by the country's public health system been to the intertwined nature of the HIV and TB epidemics? So I'm going to speak a little bit uh, first about the, the TB epidemic. And I think we need to acknowledge that South Africa is a leader when it comes to, to TB. And just in June this year, um, our Department of Health uh, took a brave step before the WHO and before any other country to make this, uh, the decision to drop a toxic uh, medicine, the injectable, from the treatment of MDR and XDR. So we are really leaders and we're, and we're leading change in the field. And again, um, we have to acknowledge that one of the reasons why um, the TB incidence in the country has decreased is the improved access to antiretrovirals across the country. So even though our ARB program had a very rocky start in the early 2000s, our government has managed uh, to catch up quite a bit. However, we still need to do more to tackle HIV. As we all know, new infections are still very much ongoing, especially in young people, and we need to integrate TB and HIV services better so that we can create a patient-centered approach to healthcare, which will ensure our patients not only test for HIV and start treatment, but also to remain in care, because we have to remember that ARVs need to be taken for life so it takes a toll on a patient, and we need to make our services appropriate to the patient. Now, Doc, would you say there are any TB trends documented in the report that you found worrying? Yes, definitely. Um, I think one of the main things for me is the continued high mortality uh, that, uh, that we're experiencing globally from TB. And also that the high-burden countries, there are only a handful of these high-burden countries that are bearing a huge burden of the disease, and that these high-burden countries are often lower- and middle-income countries. So we don't necessarily have the financial capacity to fight this uh, disease without support from the international community. And finally, the shocking lack of research and development funding. Despite this global impact, we really need more investment into developing new, new tools and medications to fight this disease. You did uh, mention earlier that uh, TB is the top infectious killer in the world. Now, why are actions and investments to end the epidemic falling far short, uh, bearing in mind that you've just mentioned that there, there is a lack of resources? So I think one of the challenging things about TB is that it's a complicated disease. It, um, it requires a multifaceted approach. So there are lots of ways in which we can improve. So some of them, the ones that come to mind is uh, the number one challenge is finding the missing cases. So those people who are living with TB, who are suffering from TB, that we're not getting to diagnose them. So whether it's making sure that they can access care or whether that they actually link to care after treating. So finding those missing cases, not only in South Africa, but globally, is, is very important to tackling this epidemic. Without doing that, we have the ongoing transmission of TB. The second thing is that we, like I mentioned, the lack of the, the, the funding means that we are still having very long treatment, which is very difficult for our patients to complete. 
So normal treatment uh, for TB is six months for drug-sensitive TB. And that might not seem so long, but most of us can't even complete a course of one-week antibiotics. So we do need to have better treatment for our patients. Another thing is it's spreading across um, many diseases, and that is the rise of antimicrobial resistance, so also known as drug-resistant tuberculosis, which is very difficult and long to treat and has very poor outcomes, with around only 50% of patients with MDR actually having successful treatment. And only 25% of patients with drug-resistant TB mm. around the world are even receiving the correct treatment. So there are some, some ways in which we can, we can why, why we're not meeting those, those targets. All right. So lastly, Dr. Fega, what do you think heads of state should prioritize next week at the UNTP Summit in New York? So I think we would like the leaders to commit to mobilize their scientific communities and increase their funding for research and development. And this would allow our patients to access better and more effective treatments. But we also have to ensure that the money that goes into this funding is actually seen by the public. And I mean that patients who are at risk and who need this medication or need these diagnostic diagnostic tools can access them regardless of where they live or how much they earn. And then finally, we would like them to use all available mechanisms to ensure equitable and affordable access to medicines by overcoming patent barriers, which prevent significant challenges to our patients accessing the new medications like the Daquilin and particularly the Laminid. Well, thank you so much, Doc, for that insight and thank you for your time. Thank you so much. That's Dr. Justine Feger, a DRTB doctor in MSF's Kailicha Project in South Africa. This is Africa Digest. The South African Film and Publication Board hosted a dialogue on culture and classification guidelines of films earlier this week. The dialogue follows this year's controversy that surrounded the film in about the wound. The movie was hit with the 18 years age restriction amid uproar from groups that accused the film producers of defaming the Kosa nation and their culture. Abongile Mashele, Acting Chief Operating Officer for the Film and Publications Board in South Africa, explains. Well, in the classification guidelines, in the first round of engagements, we asked people if we need to have a classifiable element or a consumer advisory that talks to cultural blessings so that when uh, such material is, is circulated in the market, we can warn consumers so that they, they can make the choice whether they want to see it or not. In the first round, actually, what came out is that we may not need to have a, a, an additional element because that could be over-classification. So we are asking that question once again, and we'll be doing roadshows across the country to check if um, South Africans would be amenable for us to having an additional consumer advisory, or as the Film and Publication Board, we find other mechanisms of educating South Africans, of educating filmmakers in terms of how we deal with such content in the future. What we found during England was that as a country, 
we are still very polarized. We still view content from our own subjective perspectives. And we want to use this opportunity to also dialogue as, as, as the broad spectrum of South Africa and find a way of balancing and, and embracing our diversity. You mentioned earlier the fact that uh, you are looking at the possibility of a consumer additional component in deciding on the classification guidelines going forward. In terms of that consideration when drafting such guidelines to ensure that all cultures are protected and represented appropriately. Uh, polarization of uh, South Africans at this point in time when it comes to film and, and movie production. How do we get around that? Is it, um, you know, public education? Um, as you say, you're going out on, on uh, uh, drives to, to engage with the public and educate them. Is this what is needed at this point in time in a country like South Africa? As the Film and Publication Board, one of the things that we are looking at which is within the mandate of the board, is the classification element. But you understand classification comes at the tail end when material is about to go into the market, is about to be released. Um, and what happens in the production phase and um, anything to that effect, we do not get involved in and we do not want to get involved in those things, which is why we are encouraging conversations between filmmakers and, and traditional leaders and custodians of cultural practices so that in, in the production phase, they can have those engagements, they can have those conversations. Because when during the Ingaba debacle, one thing that came out very strongly in our engagement with both groups is that there's little conversations between the two. And because there's very little conversation between the two, at times we speak past each other. So as the Film and Publication Board, we're having these dialogues and these discussions um, as our contribution towards social cohesion, as our contribution towards getting South Africans to talk to each other and finding a way or a mechanism of us embodying the constitutional values that we have in our country over and above uh, the values that we may have um, informed by our racial perspectives, our traditional backgrounds, etc., etc. So over and above the review of the classification guidelines, we are trying to encourage conversations between South Africans among South Africans about the type of content that we see um, in our country and how do we define harmful content for our environment, particularly for children. How do people get involved if they want to be a part of, um, you know, those consumers who at, at the tail end, you know, in terms of the classification or in terms of just getting involved in and understanding and being able to impart um, what they learn or what they find out about to other people? The draft classification guidelines on the website guidelines has been diverted and published for public comment. We are requesting they provide feedback by the 24th of October, 2018. We will also be going across the country. They can get the information from our website. We will be starting in case that ends next week, and we'll be moving across to all the provinces. They- that's Film and Publications Board Acting Chief Operating Officer Bongila Mashele talking to Lulu Kabu. Stand now for our economics news with Wisani Matebula.
Thanks, Amanda. Our top story of the day, South African Reserve Bank's MPC keeping the repo rates unchanged at 6.5%. As expected, delivering the MPC statement, Reserve Bank Governor Leseja Khanyaho says the risks to the inflation outlook remain elevated despite some improvement, reflected the August consumer inflation number. CPI for August is to 4.9% year-on-year from 5.1% in July. Kanyaho has also raised concerns about the impact of higher oil prices and a weaker rent on inflation. He has reiterated his position that the bank is ready to change its MPC stance whenever it's necessary. The MPC has decided to keep the repurchase rate unchanged at 6.5% per annum. Four members preferred an unchanged stance and three members preferred a 25 basis points increase. The committee continues to assess the stance of monetary policy to be accommodated. However, the MPC remains concerned about the deteriorating inflation outlook, driven mainly by multiple supply-side factors. The European Commission has warned Facebook that it will face uh, sanctions if it does not bring its uh, consumer protection with EU standards by the end of the year. The BBC's Jed Jill has the details. The EU Commission says Facebook's terms of service give a misleading presentation of the main characteristics of its services. The EU Justice and Consumer Affairs Commissioner Vera Jourova said that the company isn't telling users clearly enough that it makes their data available to third parties or that it holds full copyright of the pictures posted on Facebook. Emilian Court has sentenced uh, two defendants uh, to prison in terms of a Nigerian corruption uh, case related to a 2011 offshore oil field purchase. Nigeria's Emeka Obi and Italian Gianluca Dinado were each given four years jail sentences. The case uh, stems from the 2011 purchase by energy company Ernie and Shell of the OPL 254 offshore field in Nigeria of about 1.3 billion US dollars. In South Africa State Pension Fund, the PIC will invest 100 million US dollars to buy shares in African Export Import Bank as part of its plan to invest in the rest of the continent. PIC manages about 130 billion US dollars of South Africa's civil servants' pensions and is Africa's biggest pension fund. It will acquire Class B shares in Africzim Bank. Egypt-based Afrikzim Bank was founded by African governments and other investors in 1993 and has shareholder funds of $1.6 billion as at December 2016. Mali has proposed increasing its public spending by 3.4% for 2019, mainly to implement a peace deal with uh, the Touareg separatists and uh, to cover defense costs as it battles Islamist militants. The 2019 uh, budget an- anticipates revenue of uh, $3.6 billion. And the Malian government says the deficit, which is expected to be almost 4% wider than in 2018, will be financed by external budget support and debt securities issued by the Treasury. Financial indicators now: the dollar 10.61, Botswana pula 11.04, Zambian kwacha, BRICS currencies. The US dollar trading 4.14, Brazilian real 6.697, Russian ruble 72.25, Indian rupee 6.85, Chinese yuan, and 14.71 South African rand. Against the the European currencies, uh, the dollar is at 76 pence to the British pound and 85 cents against the euro. Commodities gold at $1,205. Platinum $822 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil $79.68 per barrel.
That's your economics news right now. It's time now for our sports news with Neto Chemani. A very good evening to you all sport fans with your latest Channel Africa sports news at this hour. I'm Neto and ETO Chemani. Starting off with tennis news. The Labour Cup teams have assembled in Chicago with some of the best players in the world, combining as teammates for the three-day tournament. The tournament, which will take place from September the 21st to the 23rd in Chicago's United Center, pits two elite six-man squads in three singles matches and one doubles each day. The first five members of each team are selected based on their post-Wimbledon ATP singles rankings, with the team captains Jean Borg and Jean McAndrews selecting the sixth. Roger Federer, Alexander Zarev, Grigor Dimitrov, Novak Djokovic, David Goffin and Kyle Edmund make up Team Europe. I mean, I would like to play with Novak. I hope he feels the same way. But uh, we're figuring it out as we speak, I think. Uh, internally, like, what are the best teams? Because we have a lot of singles guys on the team. Last year also, Rafa, he did play more doubles uh, than, than us sometimes in the past. I haven't played doubles since last year, so I'm, I'm, I'm firing. I won my match last year, so I, I, I feel like I'm really confident from that match still. Kevin Anderson, John Isner, Diego Schwarzman, Nick Kijios, Francis Diafou and Jack Sock will join forces on Team World. Wimbledon champion Djokovic, who did not play in last year's Labour Cup, says he is looking forward to the competition's refreshing format. This event was very unique in um, many ways and obviously it's my debut this year but I was watching it uh, on the TV last year and it was very exciting you know to, to see a new concept to see you know many of the guys that that shared rivalries throughout their careers like Roger and Arthur, for example you know played on the same side of the court supported each other it's a great team spirit that's what something that you know we're, we're missing a little bit because we we play mostly for ourselves and our you know our our team but you know, it's mostly individual tournaments, so, you know, aside of this, Davis Cup is the only, you know, team competition that, that really, so to say, counts and, and historically. So, um, you know, it's, it's great to see, you know, a concept like this uh, and this format working, working well. And, you know, I obviously wanted to be a part of it and have this great experience. Team Europe claimed a victory in last year's inaugural Lever Cup, named after Australian tennis great Rod Lever, with Federer beating Australian Kijos in the final match. I'm not kidding, the doubles is going to be really crucial as we saw last year, and I think they are unfortunately the favourites for all three matches in the doubles, and this is where we have to come up with a, with a couple of super teams ourselves, and having Novak on the team with his momentum winning the US Open for singles is key. I think down the stretch maybe, but also in doubles uh, it's going to help because he is struggling a lot in the return lately. On to football news. South Africa moved up one spot to 73rd position in the latest FIFA World Rankings released this afternoon. Bafana Bafana though remain 15th in Africa. For the first time ever in the table's 25-year history, top spot is shared between Belgium and World Cup winners France in the FIFA World Rankings. After the most recent international break, where South Africa were held to a goalless draw by Minos Libya, Stuart Baxter's side still managed to move up 
a single spot. On to Gulf News. Top FedEx Cup contenders have spoken to reporters on the eve of the season-ending tour championship. Bryson DeChambio is in the driver's seat, heading into the week's season-ending tour championship at East Lake in Atlanta, where FedEx Cup honors and the 10 million US dollars bonus that goes with it are also on the line for the 30 competitors. It's look, it's an honor to be here at East Lake, first tour championship, and it's been a long season, and I'm glad that uh, I've been able to play as well as I've, as I've played and to come in here number one is a pretty special spot uh, you got uh, obviously five other guys that could win it outright and so your your goal is still to just go out and win this, this event you know and that's what I'm gonna try and do Finally, in cricket news, Australia will play hard but fair against Pakistan, says captain Tim Payne as his side prepares for its first test series since the ball tempering scandal. Steve Smith, David Warner and Cameron Bancroft are saving pens for their incident which happened during a test against South Africa in March. Cricket Australia is also investigating an accusation by England's Moon Ali. Moon claims he was called Osama by an Australia player in the 2015 Ashes. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sports, I'm Neto and Ito Chemani. This is Africa Digest. It's four minutes before 6 p.m. Central African time. Recapping our top stories on Africa Digest this hour. South Sudan angered by a report blaming the government for killing of more than 60 people in the oil-producing region of Unity and the 13th Congress of South African Trade Unions ends in Johannesburg. And that wraps up Africa Digest this hour. From myself, Amanda Machaga, producer Leander Maome, technical producers Fiso Mashiko, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you for listening. You can send us your comments on the show. The email address addresses info at channelafrica.co.za or send a WhatsApp message to plus two seven seven six three double zero double three two seven. We are also on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Channel Africa One. Taking us to the top of the hour is Usezondibona by Businova featuring Zahara.